Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. We're headed over to Massachusetts today to talk to Rabbi Katie Allen, who in 2013 co-founded the Jewish Climate Action Network. JCAN's mission is, first and foremost, to sound out an urgent and visionary Jewish voice on the crisis of climate change. Katie grew up on a farm in Wisconsin with a practical side lived out through a period of teaching science, but was especially captured by spirit, including her leading into Jewish and then rabbinical studies. She was a founder of the One Earth Collective near Boston, and she is the rabbi for Mayan Tikva, a congregation which holds services outdoors year-round. And remember, we're talking about New England weather here. Katie Allen joins us via Zoom from near Boston. Katie, thank you so very, very much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you for having me. I'm just really delighted to be here with you today. Thank you for loaning me your brother for the past 20 years, long before I ever met you, to be my friend as part of the men's group I'm part of. Where are you age-wise relative to Tom? I'm younger, two older brothers than the little sister. And were you the proverbial little sister in your family? How did that go? When we were growing up, I had two brothers that were like really impossible. (laughs) And now we're all three of us really, really good friends. So it's amazing what can happen with the years. Thank God. Where were you living? We were living outside of Madison in Wisconsin. My father was at the university. And uh, when I was uh, seven, my parents bought 70 acres of land about 15 miles outside of Madison. and So that's where I did my major growing up which was just an incredible place to live. And all of us had animals at different points. And my parents weren't working the land. They weren't farmers, but we had the privilege of living on the land, which was amazing. I know that along the way, you became a biology teacher. What was your dad's discipline? He was a botanist. He was a professor of botanist in plant physiology. And, you know, I think that influenced me to some extent, trying to figure out what to do with my life. And that's where I landed for a few years. And one of the things I know about Tom, of course, is his devotion to music. Were you a musical family? Was this part of your gifts too? I think my mother more than my father brought music into the house, but not playing or singing. She just brought a lot of classical music and exposure to classical music into the house. But I'm just an enjoyer of music. Well, I have you here because you are founder of the Jewish Climate Action Network. There's so much good work being done in terms of climate change and trying to prevent it. It's harshest impact on us. When did this organization originate? We began to form in December of 2013, gradually over the years grown since then. I'm in Massachusetts. We formed in Massachusetts, and actually they're now, I don't know what you call them, nodes or something. We're affiliated only by name in New York City, in the D.C. area, and in Georgia. So people who have kind of wanted to get together and do climate work in the Jewish community, and they said, is it okay if we use that name? And we're like, yeah, please go ahead. And here in Massachusetts, we've been doing various kinds of work increasingly along the way. We had a first conference in 2015 and another one in 2019, and we're having our third one later this month, which will be online, of course, so everybody can come. 
And those have been wonderful ways to bring people together to help people know about the work we're doing. I think one of the things that I've noticed, and we've all probably noticed, is that just there were more people interested in doing this kind of work every time we had a major event or a conference or anything. It was just like much more interest in how can I be involved? What can I do? Wanting to connect with other people, finding joy in connecting with each other in the midst of working on a really, really hard issue. Since you're the founder, certainly you start with your connections with the people around you. Then usually you grow from there. Do you just write to all the Jewish congregations in the East in Massachusetts? How do you build this up from the ground? Since you didn't grow up Jewish, I figured that you didn't know 10,000 people who were Jewish to start with. Probably not. So there was another person who was helping me when we first got going. And between sort of people that he knew and connected with over the years and people that I knew and connected with over the years, we kind of created a start. And then we just tried to um, get the word out to congregations, to people that we know in the area and having programming that would be of interest to them. Most of what we do is, is really educational in some way, helping people understand what they can do and how they can do it. So tools for doing work are a lot of where we are, although I also do some programming around sort of spiritual resilience and how do we maintain our, how do we deal with the emotions that we feel and how do we maintain our sanity while we're living in a planet that's, you know, burning up and stuff like that. So how do we keep going and have some kind of, you know, hope? What does hope mean? All these kinds of questions that I sometimes explore with people too. Again, you were, along the way, you were a biology teacher. How long did you do that? And why did you quit that? Were the students that bad? <laughs> no, that wasn't it. I worked for, I guess I worked for four years in three different schools. That was a time when enrollments were declining. I taught high school science, biology and physical science. And the last one hired was always the first one fired. So that happened to me twice. And then the third time I had a baby and it was kind of like, maybe going to end anyway. So it's like, okay, this is time for me to kind of start turning in what I'm doing. So I enjoyed being a teacher, but it was just bad timing for me. And the physical sciences and biology, you know, like you said, your father, botanist, how much does that have to do why climate change is your issue? So the combination is sort of grow, having grown up in rural southwestern Wisconsin out in the farm country and my parents, each of their personal connections to the out of doors and natural world, all of that, I think, really fostered my own connection. You know, it started off with this sort of interest in the science. But then as I kind of got to know myself better, as I got older and sort of connecting with the spiritual side of myself, I wanted to do this work, but I want I wanted to, you know, and then, and then more and more seeing what was happening to our planet and feeling like a need and a gut level to do this both for the non-human world and for all of us humans. I just kept, I was searching, how do I do this work? And it never quite worked for me to work within a secular context. I, the spiritual, the religious, the Jewish piece, it was just too strong for me. It was just too much of what was motivating my core. So it's been a, it's always been a kind of a mix for me of the Jewish message and the natural world. To me, they're really, really intertwined. You know, I already mentioned you were not raised Jewish. You didn't grow up Jewish, but along the way, you ended up converting. Give me a little bit idea about that, because you keep talking about how the Jewish sensibilities and everything. So how long have you been Jewish? Uh, oh, boy. Um, let's see. 
1989. So more than 30 years. Okay. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, so, you know, a good chunk of my life here. Um, not yet have. When I found Judaism, I kind of felt like I'd come home. I just found a place that I belonged, and I found a place that a spiritual home that just resonated for me and worked for me, and it just became very deep very quickly and just connects for me to everything. So that's probably why I don't feel like I can separate out myself from my Jewish self anymore to get that. But you started out as some other influences. Did you know much about Judaism when you were young? Not much, no. So how did you get there? Well, I, I, was, I was married to a Jewish guy for a while, and I was searching for a religion. And I had, I had had some Unitarian influence when I was a kid. I have a distinct memory of um, you know, being friends with a minister's daughter. We were the same age. I was staying overnight at her house and we were, we spent like hours, you know, in these theological discussions, like what's God and so on. Interestingly enough, she became a Lutheran minister. So we both were connecting to who we really are at that time, even though neither of us went straight to being spiritual leaders. But it's just always been a part of me. I think the piece that's consistent is just this spiritual self, the openness to that in some ways, the need for that. And then my connections with uh, the natural world, like my connections with being playing outdoors, being outdoors, gardening, all these kinds of things that were just so much a part of my life, having some animals when I was growing up, chickens, I had a horse for a while, I had goats, you know, taking care of the animals. We used to do some hiking. My mother had grown up doing a lot of wilderness hiking, and she took us hiking, and those were all really important parts of my growing up. We went camping as a kid, too. So it sounds like earth-rooted spirituality makes really good sense to you. Is there a way that that is particularly Jewish? You know, okay, so interestingly enough, it is really a part of me, but I found that I needed something that would give me more of a framework. Like Unitarian did work for me because it was like too all over the place, you know, too much. It's, it's very open. It's bringing all kinds of wonderful spiritual traditions to, into it. And that didn't work for me. And Judaism has got a framework, like there became a rhythm to my week. And, you know, how many days before or after Shabbat is it? And, and that whole giving a structure to my life was really, really important to me at a time when I was kind of struggling with my own sort of personal stuff. So I'm really wondering about what is Jewish about concern for the earth? So it's really interesting. This question I've been thinking about a lot lately because I do get asked that question. And for me, it's kind of like, come on, it's just so obvious. It's everywhere. I think not everybody sees that so readily, maybe. And maybe I'm just, that's the lens through which I view everything. So that might be part of it. But, you know, it starts from the very beginning, the, the first verse in the Torah, the Bereshit Baralhim at the Shemaim Betacharetz, when things were beginning and God was creating the heavens and the earth. Then if you think about all of Genesis, I mean, there's this Garden of Eden, and there's the flood, and being living on an ark, and there's Abraham, and they're being herders and farmers, and they're connected, and there's this, Judaism has indigenous roots, and so we, you know, especially in the book of Genesis, you see that. You know, I mean, Jacob lays his head on a rock to sleep out in the wilderness and, and has this vision, this angel's going up on the ladder, and God's presence is with him. There's this, you know, Elijah, like, where is God? Not in the booming and the thunder and everything, but in the still small voice that you can hear when you're 
out in the wilderness. And then if you think about Psalms, there's so many Psalms that have all kinds of natural world imagery, the mountains dancing, you know, and things like this. Then there's all these agricultural laws that are part of, we went from being herders and nomads to being agriculture. So there's just, and I find, my spouse has said that I can find something about climate change in every parsha, every weekly portion of the Torah. It's true. I mean, I can find something everywhere to talk about because I see it everywhere. I feel like in a little bit of a way that the more we can open our eyes to seeing those connections, the more that we can feel more grounded in like a double layer of being grounded to the earth. Not only are our feet standing on it, but our spiritual and religious tradition is connecting us to it in a spiritual way as opposed to a physical way. So given this ubiquitous presence of earth-rooted spirit throughout Judaism, throughout all the texts that Judaism uses, does that mean when you start talking about Jewish Climate Action Network to other Jews, right away everybody's on board? I mean, do they, they... <laughs> Oh boy, I wish. That would be great. That would be wonderful. <laughs> no, I mean, that's not true, but it would be lovely if it were. But I think that I think that sometimes it's possible to say things that, putting it in maybe another way, when we learn, we are opening ourselves up to something that we didn't know before, right? That's what learning is all about. So each time somebody gets opened up a little bit more to something that they didn't know that has to do with either climate change or Jewish connections to the earth or both, those openings usually don't shut down again they usually can lead to other openings. And so that's why I feel like learning and talking about all of this is one of the most important things to do, because that can then lead us to taking action. So what was your reception in the first couple of years? You had the first big conference in 2015. What happened in those first two years? Was that when you, it solidified within Massachusetts? Did it spread to other states? What happened? In those first few years, we really had to kind of let people know that we existed. And that's part of the reason why we had the conference, which was in 2015. So it's like about a year and a half after we had our first time of gathering names of people and starting to talk to each other. We had a couple of other programs in between, but we wanted to do something that was that we were going to try and get publicized more so that people could start saying, oh, there's this Jewish climate organization out there. Maybe I should go see what that's about. That was kind of the process and sort of like letting people know that we exist, talking about the kinds of things that we do, inviting people to join us, educating people, providing opportunities for connecting with other climate activists. So we call ourselves a network in which, you know, a goal is also to just, because there might be like a congregation where there's one person that feels like they're beating a head against the wall. And that when we were first starting, the fact that there might be just one person beating their head against the wall in their, in their congregation was much more likely than it is today. Today, there might be 10 people beating their heads against the wall, or they might have their congregation on board and actually doing a lot. So there's been a lot of change in these six years since we had our first conference. A lot more people are trying to find ways. But in the beginning, it was just like really trying to find those people and help them connect each other and find some energy and strength in that connection and also ideas and understandings of what to do things. So some of the programs that we provide are basically peer-led, like we've done a program called Solar for Synagogue, which is, you know, trying to help people understand how to get over the hurdles that they usually think might exist and generally might not to doing that. And so it's peer-to-peer. It's like, this is how we did it in our synagogue. This is what we confronted and this is how we made it work. You know, and several synagogues doing that. And then people were like, oh, wow, maybe we can do that too. 
So that connecting across, you know, because people tend to get a little bit siloed from their own congregations. And so trying to nurture the uh, cross-fertilization is a big piece of what we have been doing all along. And so let's talk about that kind of a specific program, Solar for Synagogues. Is that widespread? What do you actually do? What does that mean, Solar for Synagogues? We have that program once, and actually we're going to do sort of a similar kind of program during our conference, which is, you know, it was a one-time thing. It was back in the day when we used to be able to get together in person, and we had representatives from more than 20 congregations in the eastern Massachusetts that came to that program. And, and learn from each other and then had the opportunity to talk to vendors who could help them and if people could figure out how to help them with the financial end of it. And so the result of that was that a bunch of those synagogues had solar because they were able to overcome the hurdles that had been standing in their way. How much of the motivation is economical for them? You know, it's going to cost you less versus this is what we should be doing for the planet. You know, when it comes to talking to the board, the finances are really super, super important. It helps that it's both. I mean, if it were an immoral issue, then I don't think you would get very far at all. But, you know, a lot of people do want to be able to do something, but the bottom line is critical. Things have to be done in a way that are going to keep the congregation solvent. It's just a reality. And some people push harder against that, you know, the financial issues than others. But part of what has happened is that sometimes congregations have discovered, oh, they thought they were going to have to put all this money up front. And then lo and behold, it turns out there's like other ways to do this that make financial sense from the get-go. And they're way less financially risky and may even be financially good. I'm, a, I'm not an expert on all this, like how much stuff costs and how to do it at all. I can give you the big picture, not the deep. Wait, you have to be an expert. You were a biology teacher. Oh, wait, that doesn't have anything to do with solar. <laughs> you taught physical sciences too, though, right? <laughs> has nothing to do with the finances of solar panels. <laughs> <laughs> well, is it particularly favorable in Massachusetts? Wisconsin, we've had problems because we've had changes in administration at one point. Yeah. Uh, Democrat-led legislature, they were more favorable. They kicked in and now actually compared to our neighbors, Minnesota, it's considerably less advantageous in Wisconsin to do some of that organizing and financing. Well, these are, there are state-specific issues and there have been hurdles in Massachusetts, but I think it's much better in Actually, our legislature just passed a whole new bill, climate bill in Massachusetts. It's going to make things even better. So, yeah, I I think it's actually this climate bill is going to be a leader in the across the country in terms of what it's providing here in Massachusetts. So, yes, we do have that advantage. Folks, we are speaking with Rabbi Katie Allen. She is founder of an organization called the Jewish Climate Action Network. Their website is jewishclimate.org. That's one of the places you can find them. And particularly on there, you're going to find out that on the 25th of April, they're holding their third major conference. And you can find out about joining that via the website. Again, jewishclimate.org is the website. Let me talk about some of the other programs, Katie, that have to do with what you're doing as Jewish Climate Action Network, what specifically you're doing to make things better in the world. So on your website, it describes that you, I mean, you're, it talks about you're doing education, activism and organizing, and it talks about your mission. 
some of it is the hands-on things like, you know, Solover synagogues. That's a very hands-on thing. But some of it involves lobbying to get changes, legislature, and sometimes it's people just educating themselves. So talk about that mix and what you emphasize. Right. So we have always advocated for three ways of being active, three ways that we have engaged with the uh, Jewish communities. The biggest piece of it is the education. The biggest piece of it is helping people understand what they can do and how they can do it. Divestment from fossil fuels, all kinds of, you know, heat pumps, these kinds of things. Another piece, part of the sort of, I guess, might go under the educational is the sort of spiritual resilience piece of it. How do we keep ourselves going, keep up our strength? Part of it is just being together and having a group that works together to do this work really is helpful for people. We also have always mobilized people to go to like climate strike, the climate march in New York and D.C., getting people out, you know, encouraging people and helping people get out those. And we also promote advocacy at both the state and the national level. We don't have specific programming so much around those areas. We partner with other organizations for those things here in Massachusetts. We've had a long partnership with the Massachusetts Interfaith Power and Light but also an organization called Mass Power Forward, which is a collaboration of many environmental organizations, you know, all kinds of organizations, big and small, Sierra Club, Massachusetts, and different organizations that are working for renewable, clean energy, environmental justice, all of that at the state level. And then there are two organizations that we partner with at the national level. These are both newer organizations. One is the Jewish Earth Alliance, and the other is Dayenu. Dayenu is a relatively new organization, but it's made a really it's making a really big rollout and impact across the Jewish community at the national level. And they are focusing one of their main focuses advocacy. So we helped with getting out climate voters. We are involved in programs that they're organizing that are advocating at the national level. So we don't really have the bandwidth of people to do that. So we're really grateful for Dainu and also for the Jewish Arts Alliance, which is a smaller organization, for filling in the holes there in the Jewish community. My understanding is, Katie, that you were also one of the founders of the Earth Collaborative, the One Earth Collaborative, I believe was the name. I understand that's no longer going, but was that in some way a stepping stone or additional branch? Is that part of what led to Jewish Climate Action Network? Yeah, I developed that program at Open Spirit, which is a multi-faith and kind of mind-body-spirit-center in the town next to where I live in Framingham, Massachusetts. And I brought sort of earth and spirit kinds of things there. So for a few years, so we did, um, actually one of the wonderful things that we did was there was somebody who was getting a permaculture business going and wanted to do like a garden in a public, in a place that people could see it, kind of a showcase. And so we worked with him and we put in a little edible food forest and part of the space there, which was just really wonderful. And it's beautiful now. I, I led walks, sort of combining just being joining, being outdoors with some kind of spiritual piece. So for a while, we were doing this foraging as a spiritual practice, had some people who were experts come in and teach some classes about that, and, and always talked about it as a um, kind of a spiritual practice. And there were a whole bunch of hard maple trees on their property. So we opened what we called a community sugar bush, and people could help with collecting the sap. People could take some home and try boiling a little bit down at home. 
So these were the kinds of things that I did there much more. This is, you know, so multi-place places, uh, open to everybody, kind of religion or no religion. And so it was more just keeping this that spiritual connection to the earth, interweaving that into other programs and specific programs that I organized there. That was a lot of fun while I was doing it. Um, I did that for a few years and then I just needed to step back because I was doing too much and couldn't do everything. <laughs> well, and plus... You're working now within a Jewish umbrella, and that was a much bigger umbrella. Maybe it was a pagoda. I don't know what it was. <laughs> if, is it somehow more nourishing to you and maybe to participants to be in a Jewish umbrella? It's different. I feel that it's different. On a personal level, I feel like that's where the grounding is. One of the things that's been a little bit frustrating in the Boston area is there have been a few attempts to really get the interfaith climate action organized. And at one point, there was like a scientists and faith leaders, and it, it's never been able to sustain itself. So I don't know why that is the case. But, you know, maybe one day we will, because it would be really good if we could better unite our voices. But I think to some extent, everybody is working in their own faith tradition. It's like they're working so hard doing that, that also to do that and to connect to other faiths is hard. But I think it brings a richness. There was uh, some of us gathered one year and organized an event at the State House that was during Holy Week leading up to Passover. And or maybe it was during Passover, I don't remember. It might have been both. And it was wonderful. It was great to work across faith. So I think to some extent, it's just like, I just didn't have the bandwidth to do it all, which I guess is what's happening to other people too. We have to do what we can do. And it's never enough, but on the other hand, it has to be enough for us at some point. It's not wise ecologically to overstrain your ecological system. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly right. And if we try to do that, it comes back to haunt us. Yeah. Folks, we are speaking with Rabbi Katie Allen. She is founder of Jewish Climate Action Network. She's over in Massachusetts, although, as you've already heard earlier in the interview, she started from Wisconsin, which is, of course, where I'm located and where I met her brother. She's also a founder of One Earth Collaborative. And there's another thing we're going to talk about, her rabbinate services with Mayan Tikva, a wellspring of hope. And we'll talk about that very shortly. But she's here today for Spirit in Action because of her role with the Jewish Climate Action Network. Links to jewishclimate.org are on northernspiritradio.org. Our website, we always link to all of our guests, and we've had uh, many, many hundreds of them since 2005 when we originated. And so you can follow links to that. You don't have to memorize. Just come check out Rabbi Katie Allen interview on northernspiritradio.org. You'll find how to get a hold of her, how to participate, for instance, in the big conference they're going to be holding on the 25th of April this year, their third big conference. Also on our site, there's a place to post comments on our programs. Please do that make our communication two-way. That's also how you donate under support us. You just go down and you can donate to us. I would say even more importantly, though, is to make sure that in general, community radio stations like the 42 or so stations that carry Northern Spirit programming across the U.S., that you support them. Start by supporting them. And then if you have a few shekels left, you can donate them to us. I assume, by the way, Katie, that, of course, the Jewish Climate Action Network also accepts shekels. (laughs) We do. We do. (laughs) We accept shekels and we accept dollars. (laughs) 
I wanted to ask you a little bit more about Dainu, a Jewish call to action. Is it specifically climate related or does it have other areas of activism? It's specifically climate related and founded to provide a Jewish response to the climate. And yeah, there's some really good people doing that lead work who are had a lot of experience in the national level doing organizing and and social justice work and that kind of things. And that's, you know, a big focus for them as well. The environmental justice issues. A lot of my listeners may or may not know much about Jewish organization, Jewish affiliation. So I think it's probably important to spell out some of that. Um, most people probably have heard about Orthodox Jews, and maybe they've heard about ultra-Orthodox, or maybe they've heard about Reform or Conservative you are something different. The Jewish Climate Action Network is not affiliated with any branch. Talk about how that works and and where's fertile ground or how you go about contacting different folks. So I went to a pluralistic seminary, which was not affiliated with any of the movements. There were people there with a wide range of, of Jewish observance. And I felt really comfortable there because of that. I brought that sensibility to JCAN when we got founded. We founded because I'm like, I don't care how you want to do it, climate action. You want to do climate action. You are welcome to be here. I don't care where you come from in the Jewish community. All of It's all good. We all need to come together. We all need to do this work. We can feel called to do this work in different kinds of ways. We can feel passionate in one way that we might not feel passionate in another way. And so this idea that we need to get renewable energy. We need to advocate. We need to work on getting rid of our lawns and put in native habitats. We need to divest our funds from fossil fuels. This idea that all of these things are important is something that I brought to JCAN when we got founded. And also, you know, everybody across the Jewish spectrum, we all need to be doing this work. You know, and people are engaged from different movements. Most of the people who are active in our sort of leadership team are either conservative or reform. But we also have people connected who are Orthodox and Reconstructionist and unaffiliated. And so you want to come, you want to be part of what we're doing, please come help us do this. We need to all be doing this work. There's some of the specifics of Jewish practice and belief that would seem relevant to me. One of them is the relationship to animals, and certainly the dietary laws come into that. Is there anything in Jewish dietary laws that automatically should rule out CAFOs, confined animal feeding operations, you know, where they have thousands of cows, right? certainly pigs, but right. is there anything about that? Because I, there's actually rules for kosher foods about how you kill an animal. Right. Yeah. I mean, there are... It's Tsar Baalei Chaim, which is the suffering of living animals. And there's a commandment to us, like a, we're supposed to prevent that. That's like about as great a connection as you could get, I would say. Also, just in general, acknowledging the sacredness of all life, that everything is connected to creation, God's creation that we're part of. And so that is in a broader sense. Well, that would make sense. Does that actually come into how Jews, how the organization that certifies something is kosher, how it rules, whether it is or not? I mean, does that automatically, I think, rule out a KFO? You know, I think there were a lot of people that would say yes, 
but there's also a fairly recent different kind of hekshara. Hekshara is a kosher legitimacy stamp. So that you know the, the little logo that you see that identifies something as kosher is called a hekshara. And there's a new one that has to do with eco-kashrut. And that one is really focusing in and saying that how animals or plants are raised, you know, and it could even be things like pesticides and those kinds of things which are doing damage. So technically, you know, what could be kosher is not necessarily good for the planet. So this is a, a new movement that's arisen that's sort of trying to say we want to be able to identify our food as not only being strictly kosher by the kashrut, but also kosher in the sense of being, which means acceptable, of being acceptable in terms of how it impacts the planet. Now, you're speaking from the Jewish world. I'm Quaker, and people often ask us, you know, do Quakers believe this or do Quakers do this? And we have to say some do, some don't, because we're not a one-size-fits-all. And I believe that's the kind of situation you're doing in. But I do want to ask you some questions that are in that direction. So oftentimes in English, we translate the words that are in Genesis as God giving us dominion over the animals. Whereas we're used to thinking of Native Native Americans, the indigenous people who are here before us, talking about all my relations, that it's more like animals are cousins as opposed to our servants. Is there any clear vision that either was or is uprising in the Jewish world? Because the diet that we eat, and particularly vegetarian or not, has a big impact on climate. So when it comes to asking a question about Judaism, my answer is generally it depends on whom you ask. So there's definitely a strong environmental movement, and a lot of it's coming out come out of the Jewish farming movement that's been going on for quite a while. That's been really strong and important for young people in particular, but some of those young people are getting older now. So that has brought a real environmentally helpful sensibility to all of this. And there's also a lot of work being done with the idea of Shemitah, the sabbatical year coming up to a spat, another sabbatical year when you were commanded to allow the land to lie fallow. How do, and that, that is still real in Israel, but there are all kinds of ways to get around it. So the questions that are being asked today are like, what meaning can we who are in the diaspora take from this practice and all the teachings around it today that can help us inform our way of thinking about the earth? There's also the idea of being co-creators with God in the ongoing creation of the world. And that's a theological thought, you know, that is present in Judaism. And again, not everybody, okay? Depends on whom you ask. So it really does depend, but there are, there's a lot of interesting kinds of thinking. And uh, there's a fabulous book by my colleague and friend, Rabbi David Seidenberg, called Kabbalah and Ecology, the Divine Image in the More Than Human World, in which he explores in Judaism how the idea that everything is created in God's image, you know, the chickens and the trees and the rocks, as well as people, and that that's a theology that's been present in different streams for quite a long time, but has not ever been center stage. So, there's, there, there's a lot to reach back into to inform what our relation, our thinking about what our relationship was with the earth, and different people are going to zero in on different parts of that. 
My understanding is, Katie, that you're part of a conservative congregation. You started out originally affiliated with Reform, but that in addition to this, you have your own congregation. You are a rabbi, after all. Mayan Tikva, Wellspring of Hope, is a special case. So what's the relationship for you between being a member of a conservative congregation, a conservative synagogue, and being a rabbi for this alternative worship? So I started my Antikva 2007. I had been working in a part-time in a congregation, also working part-time as a chaplain. And I, I left there because it was a little bit of a round peg in a square hole. And as I was kind of contemplating what to do, you know, I realized that what I really wanted to do was to lead services outdoors. Part of my prayer practice has for a long time been praying outdoors. And I decided that I wanted to start bringing that to other people. So it's very alternative. It's very, I mean, we do a Shabbat walk service. We take a walk in a local conservation land. We do some of the traditional prayers. We have the discussion about the Torah portion. It's not a traditional service. It contains components of the traditional service, but there's no Torah service. There's no reading from the Torah. So it's very different. And uh, most of the people who are attracted, they're sort of, you know, they're kind of on the edge. They, a regular synagogue doesn't work for them. And I'm very comfortable in that context. A few years ago, I started a school that's connected with that. So we now have 16 children in a little a program called Yeladim Bateva, which means children in nature. It's an alternative to a traditional Hebrew school, in which kids are we're learning outside. So we've been able to continue in person this year with having smaller than we had before. They're small classes anyway, but we made them smaller this year. And the kids have been able to gather outside and continue to do Jewish learning in person. And we also have family programs. So they've been able to gather together too, again, in small groups. So this is, uh, this is really where my heart and soul is in a bit. And yet, you know, we're small. People are not necessarily committed to all the minor holidays and everything. And I wanted to have that. I had been a member of this congregation in the past and then had, had left as a, as a congregant after I was ordained, and then I um, I wanted to go back. And so I attend there sometimes. You know, I'm not there every Saturday morning because I'm doing my own thing. But it just feels good to me to have that connection. And why a conservative congregation, I think, in large part, I was really attracted to it because I love the Hebrew. I just, Hebrew speaks to a part of my soul that the rest of that English doesn't speak to. And they just kind of go in in parallel channels to different places within my heart and soul and mind. So I'm not absor- as observant, but I love the I love the language. I love the connection to all of the holidays, not just some of them. So those are some of the things that are you know reasons why I'm there again. When you were talking about how the service happens for you, and again I'm talking about my antiqua. You say you have elements of the Jewish service. Will you say the Shema together? Will you do davening? What kind of stuff like that would you include or not? I have my little portable Siddur, which can be found on the front and back of two eight and a half by 11 pages, pieces of paper that are stapled together to form a little booklet. So within that are sort of the core elements of a Shabbat morning service. Not everything by far but key pieces. And so we, we share those together, those key pieces, those key prayers. Um, yes, the Shema is obviously an important part of it, but there are other prayers that are in it too. So we do that, and I always try to help people connect to the world around them. So one of the things that, for example, is that when they say the Shema, 
the letter shin that starts that word is it looks kind of similar to if you hold up your three fingers of your hand together. It's like a three-pointed letter like that. And I invite people to find the shin in the trees. And I invite you to take a look. You'll be amazed at how many, you know, you have a branch and then it continues, but it branches off in two directions. And there you've got your shin. And shin is the first letter of not only of shma, which means to, to hear, to listen, but also of shalom, peace, shaddai, which is a name for God, sheket, which is silent. So this becomes a way of bringing the prayer and the trees together as you pray. When I read through the full Jewish scriptures and on into the Christian scriptures and the Bible I was raised with, I was raised Catholic, not Quaker. One of the ways that the Jews got in a lot of trouble with Adonai was when they were having their worship in the high places instead of in the synagogue. Is there any problem? Are there Jewish voices that say, you're not supposed to be out doing this because that's like going out in the high places? I don't, I don't know if this is stretching it or not. But I, I read a whole lot of trouble. There's a whole lot of hot water the Jews got into because they didn't do things in the temple or in the right place. Right. So the question is, what are you worshiping? Are you praying to the trees or are you praying with the trees? It's a very different thing. So, you know, there are places like Rabbi Nachman of Braslav, the Hasidic teacher, has wonderful, some wonderful prayers, some wonderful statements about the grasses, the, the prayers of the grasses and the trees joining with our prayers or, or even helping our prayers come to be. So I'm still worshiping one God when I'm out there, you know. I'm sure there are people who think that what we're doing is horrible, of course. I mean, that goes without saying. That's a given. But in terms of the experience, I'm in relationship with the trees. I am not seeing them as being God. I may see God as being within them in the same way that God is within everything. But that's different. And I mean, the whole problem with what the ancient Israelites were doing was that they were worshiping idols. So this is not about that. The dietary thing, I wanted to circle back to one element of that. I mentioned that one of the things I've read is that one of the most important things that we can do in terms of reducing our carbon footprint is to eat vegetarian. And I happen to have been a vegetarian since 1976, as is my Jewish friend, Eli, who is actually vegan. And in the local synagogue here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, where I am, when they have meals brought in to make things easy on themselves, they've had them all be vegetarian. And part of it was because then it's easier to keep the kosher laws, right? You don't have to worry about the conflicts of mixing animal with yes. milk and all that kind of thing. So is there any element of thought about that that's common in either the Jewish Climate Action Network or in Dainu or just any of the other thoughts is is vegetarianism or is eating lower on the whole? Yeah. So there's actually a Jewish veg. There's an organization about trying to get Jews to eat vegetarian and vegan. And they can tell you in ways that I could not, but arguments about how Judaism really promotes a vegetarian diet. That's what they're putting forward. And that's what they're working on along with the environmental piece of it. So the environmental piece of it is important, but it's also really easy for people to get really focused and hung up on food and not do other things. 
which is something that we've kind of discovered and some of the other things that we can do have can have much more impact than the food. It is true that it's something that's, well, I mean, it's hard in some ways, but it's also, on the other hand, easier and it's not expensive and all those kinds of things. So it is something that's important for us to do, but we have to be careful not to lose sight of the other things which are really important and to keep doing everything. You did mention foraging, which I happen to be a big fan of. Yeah, that's the lowest carbon footprint of all. <laughs> when you go out your door and you find something in your yard that you didn't know you could eat and you can eat it. This year is the first year that I've tapped the maple trees by our house. I live out in the country. And so I've produced about four and a half gallons of maple syrup. Oh, wow. And you're welcome to come over. I'll make some good pancakes for you. <laughs> I think I will. <laughs> Thank you. So foraging, again, because we're talking about Jewish Climate Action Network, what's the intersection of foraging with the Jewish element of in this kind of environmentalism? You know, we're, we don't really, we're not really talking about foraging at, the, at JCAN. It's kind of got a very specific group of people that are interested in doing that. <laughs> not everybody, what's its impact? I don't know. Uh, it's not an area of, I mean, again, I, th- I feel like it's something that connects you, helps you feel more connected to the land. Well, one of the areas I was digging in on was acorns. So I process acorns. Each year I make a recipe I created called Wild Rice Acorn Burgers. And they're pretty nice, yes. And I do have some in my freezer. So after you have your maple syrup on your French toast, you can have some of that if you come visit. But one of the things I ran into was my friend Sam Thayer had referred to this ethos about that. Uh, Sam lives about an hour away from here. And he pointed out that there was an active effort by this thing coming out of the Middle East where wheat began, right? Right. And to get rid of the Druids who lived in the woods, you had to taint their way of thinking. In particular, they ate acorns. I mean, acorns used to be one of the most common foods on the planet. Very good protein and calorie sources. So actually there is in what we know as the Gnostic Gospels, there are a couple different passages where it refers to that acorns are for the pigs, for the swine, but wheat is for people. So this comes out again out of the writings and it gets passed down, this this reverence for wheat. Yeah. Oh. And in the day of being gluten-free, when dietary substances are part of your religious heritage. Right. So as we go into Pesach, you know, as we go to Passover, right, then, okay, we got to get rid of the yeast, right? We can still eat wheat though, right? Right, in a different form, right. Yeah, so just coming off of eight days of having uh, not had your normal wheat. But there's it's an interesting things happening with ancient grains. So, you know, these biblical grains, which have been found still growing wild in Israel, that are now being grown, like einkorn and emmer, you know, and these are, I think it's einkorn that some people with, with celiac disease can still eat it because, you know, it, it, everything's been so refined over the generations. Yeah. All of which is about our relationship with the land. You know, I mean, it all comes back to the same thing on some level. Well, let's close off with just, again, telling people about the Third Jewish Climate Action Conference. It's coming up on April 25th. What is it? How is it going to happen? And why should people attend? So this particular conference that we're planning is going to be online from 12 until 8 Eastern time. 
on Sunday, the 25th, and there will be numerous tracks of workshops throughout the day, youth decarbonizing renewable energy, soil and advocacy and spiritual resilience and divestment. We really have geared it towards action items, and we're also weaving throughout issues about environmental justice. The intention is that if you come to this conference or even part of it, that you will go away with ideas about what you can do. That's really where the focus of the conference is. We want action, action solutions. Um, we want people to have fun too, but you know, as much as you can when you're watching Zoom. So we're doing like little mini sessions in between that are storytelling or music or things just to keep people going. That's our hope is that people will come away inspired and feeling like they have some tools that they didn't have before they watched it of what to do next, whether it's in your individual home or within your congregation. And you don't, you don't have to be Jewish to come. You'll hear a little bit of Judaism, but a lot of what you're going to hear is about what you can do. So everybody's welcome. And it's free. It's also free. So it's fairly affordable if it's free. For details, you can find them via jewishclimate.org. On there, you'll find about the third Jewish Climate Action Conference, April 25th, remember, folks. Now, we've been speaking with Rabbi Katie Allen. She's founder of Jewish Climate Action Network. I assume people, you're interested in talking to people all the time. They can find you via the website, right? You betcha. Yep. Absolutely. There's contact information there, and that usually comes to my inbox. And you can also find on the website the descriptions of all the sessions that are going to be at the conference. And in addition to everything else that you do, you do periodic workshops. In March, you were doing, a, I think it was three-session workshop. And if people want to jump on that kind of thing, you'll have more of that coming up, I'm sure. Right. We have some pre-conference workshops coming up, so we encourage people to attend those too. Thank you. So check it all out at jewishclimate.org. Katie, thank you so much for doing the work, for following the spirit. And I am particularly intrigued by the idea that year round, and you are in Massachusetts, this isn't Savannah, Georgia or somewhere, year round outdoor worship. Yeah, I think that the fact that there's a strong and vibrant Jewish message in this worship outdoors, I think is can't help but enrich the world, can't help but make things better for both the individuals and for the world in which we reside. I thank you for doing that work and leading that spiritual effort. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's been fun. Again, the website is jewishclimate.org, where you can track down Rabbi Katie Allen and perhaps consider attending their online conference on April 25th. We'll go out with a portion of a song. The full song is on nordenspiritradio.org as a bonus excerpt to this show, a song written by Shoshana Friedman and performed by her in a workshop at the Big Bold Jewish Climate Fest in January of this year. Links are on our website, and we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. Here's The Tide is Rising by Shoshana Friedman. We will begin with a song that I wrote some years back, taking the catastrophe of climate change and turning the language to help us find our own strength. It's called The Tide is Rising, and I'm going to post the lyrics in the chat, including a Hebrew verse transliterated.
tide is rising, and so are we. The tide is rising, and so are we. The tide is rising, and so are we. This is where we are called to be. This is where we are called to be. Try that with me. The tide is rising. The tide is rising, and so are we. The tide is rising, and so are we. The tide is rising, and so are we. This is where we are called to be. This is where we are called to be. The task is mighty. Right, so this comes from Mishnah. Hamalacha merubah. We'll do it in English. The task is mighty, and so are we. The task is mighty, and so are we. The task is mighty, and so are we. This is where we are called to be. This is where we are called to be. The land is holy. The land is holy, and so are we. The land is holy, and so are we. The land is holy, and so are we. This is where we are called to be. This is where we are called to be. The storm is raging, and so are we. So are we? The storm is raging, and so are we. This is where we are called to be. This is where we are called to be. The sun is shining. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh